listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Can everyone hear me over the crickets? Okay, huh? Thanks. <laughs> kind of nice. Um, so there have been a couple of interesting things that have kind of come up over this past week that um, really, really kind of brought practice into focus that I thought I would share, my, my practice at least. Um, to begin with, I... I was at a memorial service yesterday. <laughs> I would say one of the worst things about this gig, sitting in front of people who think that I actually have something to say, is that people think I actually have something to say. <laughs> and the second worst aspect of that is that they, they think that I have something to say the minute something really disastrous happens, like, I don't know, a death. So whenever anybody even remotely affiliated with this practice, or even with me, old friends and so forth, whenever anybody dies, it seems, now I get a call. And it's not that I don't relish being on the front line of the human experience and being able to participate at a really deep level. That, I think, is quite beautiful. But... It's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. This woman that uh, that died was uh, one of my best friends, oldest and dearest friends, uh, older sister. And um, I've known her for the better part of 30 or so years. And she, just to give you a little bit of background, she was uh, a lead dancer in the Merce Cunningham uh, dance group uh, in the early 80s in New York City which would have been just the most amazing time to be in New York City, I think, for an assortment of different reasons, especially as an artist. Um, she and her uh, partner um, were just an amazing, amazing couple. He was this, he was a kind of a, uh, a painter, sculptor, to use different kinds of media, and she was this dancer, and together they put stuff together that was featured at the Whitney and so forth, and they, you know... Uh, they were just really an amazing, an amazing couple. She then developed in 1988 rheumatoid arthritis. And for a dancer, can you imagine anything worse? You know, where your body then is suddenly taken from you. Um, the marriage ended up dissolving over time. Uh, she had a remarkable son who's still remarkable. Uh, then a couple of years ago, if I'm getting the timing right, she she uh, she was diagnosed with uh, with cancer. I mean, just one thing after another, and it was as if the universe, her entire life, was telling her, "Let go, let go." And her whole life had been about war. Sometimes they were very quiet wars; other times they were loud. And uh, when her her marriage ended. She immediately kind of went into uh, Zen practice. And over the years, she and I had exchanged a, a, a couple of very, very interesting emails. 
you know, about this whole, this whole thing, uh, this whole Buddhist thing. And I remember um, how she got so upset with, with uh, the Buddhist practice when she found out that the, the Buddha actually uh, had left his wife and child. And this is exactly what she didn't want to hear, she didn't need to hear. You know, this proved that all religion sucks and so forth. So here again, my, my pointer, as, as, as awkward as it was, was just, it, do you really believe that? Do you really believe that that's what the Buddha did? Are you clinging to that? Just like you're clinging to the way you think, should, you, the way you think things ought to be. Um, and then, of course, she and I didn't talk for months and months and months and months. Um, but I think this gets, it gets to the core of a really deep issue for each of us. Most of us in here got to where we are because we think things should be a certain way. Everyone in this room, the pain that you have felt has largely been for the same reason. The suffering that you've experienced, that I've experienced, largely has come about because of the way we think things should be, not the way things are. And so as a result, we wage war with the universe. It doesn't take much of a scholar or genius to recognize that the universe is always going to kick our asses. Every time it will win if we pit ourselves in opposition to it. So you ready for the teaching of a lifetime? You ready? Stop putting yourself or anybody else or any situation in opposition to the universe. Knock it off. Yes, but I don't want gray hair. <laughs> to that, I would just say, at least you've got it. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> That's actually a good example. I remember when I started losing my hair. Any other bald guy? I'm, I don't think there are any other... Dave, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember when you started losing the... Stuff up top, I mean, for me, it w- this is before you met your lovely wife, right? I don't, don't, don't. I don't know when it happened. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, thing, the thing for me, I mean, my own vanity was just, it was such a great, great reminder of how silly. I mean, what am I going to do? Well, you could get a toupee. No. People know. I mean, everybody knows when... And it's not that the guy who's wearing a toupee is necessarily doing anything wrong. I mean, at all. I think it's, it's fine. But, again, it becomes this, this space of, of vanity. In fact, I would say anytime we pit ourselves against the universe and raise our little fists up against it, it's all Vanity. And that's the one thing that's going to be taken right out from under us. <laughs> At death, 
you can be vain at death. Have you ever seen somebody on their deathbed who's vain? No, they get it. What if we got that before? What if we got that before? And this doesn't mean we categorically reject, for instance, how we may look or present ourselves in front of groups. It doesn't mean we categorically reject any type of accoutrement, decoration, aesthetic. It means that our relationship to every single aspect of the way we meet the world is in accord with a resonant relationship with what is. And I've been yammering on about this quite a bit over the last several months. This has been a major theme for us, this idea that when you can't accept things as they are, or as Suzuki Roshi used to say, things as it is, meaning the plural, as one, things as it is. I always loved that line. I thought that was so cool. If we can't accept things as it is, then we're never going to feel fulfilled. One of the great definitions of awakening that we, we might be able to touch on here a little bit later is the awakened being isn't somebody necessarily who's walking around kind of wide-eyed, you know, looks kind of frightening, but you know that they're, they got it or something like that. In fact, that the awakened being tends to be somebody who is always and perpetually without need. They don't have any need, really, that's beyond what's available. doesn't mean that they don't get hungry or they don't get thirsty, but when they're hungry, the enlightened will eat. When the enlightened are thirsty, they will drink. When the enlightened are ever in a situation where harm is going to be caused, they're very circumspect and careful about their activity. It's kind of a beautiful simplicity, actually, if we think about it. Rather than being a state, it's a trait. So with that in mind, I'd really like to encourage every single person tonight, as you're sitting, let the crickets fill you. Know that they're not separate from you. If they are within your awareness, they are within you. You are that expansive. If you're experiencing pain, heartbreak, utter, complete, and total fulfillment, happiness, bliss, it's within your awareness. Therefore, it is within you. You are that big. That the smallness of experience, the smallness of that desire for things to be other than they are, is within you. But it's not all of you. That there's so much more to this story each of us calls I, me and mine and that in stillness as we just sit here in this simple beautiful gift of a night
Our work is just to meet it. <clears throat> meet the stillness. Meet the crickets. Meet our minds. Meet our bodies. Meet exactly what's happening as it's happening without going to war. That we declare peace. Even if it's just for 35 minutes. I give you full permission to declare war after that. We can maybe unpack it here in Sangha. <laughs> no guns, knives, spears, or explosives, though. <laughs> So I'm hoping my pause there put everyone in touch with a little bit of what the hell's going on. How come he's not saying anything? That's attachment. Okay? That's clinging. If I'd waited a little bit longer, maybe some of you would have went, I spent 15 freaking bucks on this? What a jackass. Jackass Zen, you know. <laughs> the point is that our ability and our propensity to cling is rampant. Which should have been, and I probably should have waited for another five minutes or so. That's probably what I should have done. I was dared by uh, one of my students tonight to do that. I dare you to just not say anything for like five minutes and wait for the tension to build. <laughs> so I figured I'd just go for a minute and a half and see what, what that did. But the idea is actually a really cool one. One of the greatest Dharma talks ever given was when the Buddha sat in front 
of the congregation and said precisely nothing but held up a flower. And very famously, a monk in the, you know, out in the audience woke up. And that's when the Buddha passed the lineage on. Now, I mean, there's, there's much more intricate parts to the story that I'm not going to go into, but that's actually what this symbolizes, actually. It's the flower that he held up. Um, but we have no idea if he actually even lived, so who cares? <laughs> Don't cling to that. It's just a guidepost. It's just an offering. It's just a way of helping us kind of coalesce mythology into something that actually can support a deepening of our own practice. Ask yourself this. Would you have been utterly and completely content? Would you have been in a space when, where, where you could have left this room feeling fulfilled if I had not said a word? Yeah, most, most people are like, <laughs> no. Now, it's not a measure of your level of awakening or not. I'm not, I'm not trying to equate that, but, but just notice that about yourself. What are your expectations? What are your expectations, not only of this group, but of the experience of sitting with the group? Of listening to some bald suburban guy with a job and a car and a family tell you about the Dharma. We can build it up into something that it's not, and we can also tear it down into something that it's not. In every situation, whether it's the Dharma experience that we share on Monday nights, or it's the job that you have, or the relationship that you have, or the relationship that you want, whatever the situation is that you crave, that's exactly where we can find the seeds to our own suffering sown. It also tends to destroy others in the process. What we cling to is what we kill. And so being able to do this, shift our, our focus from you know, the, the habitual energetic you know, grasp into a rehabitualized and very conscious opening releasing is a trick actually it's not a trick at all it's very natural but it's something that I mean we have to relearn essentially and one of the greatest areas of stickiness uh, where, we, where we can tend to get caught especially as our practice gets into it's no longer It's no longer a novelty. It's actually something we're taking a little bit more seriously. We begin to have experiences on our cushion or on our chair in our stillness. We begin to actually, huh, wow, that was pretty profound. Where we find ourselves being invited to the party. I had a teacher say that once. I went and talked to him. It was in a dokusan. I said, okay, okay, here's what's going on. And I'm kind of expressing it to him, and, and, and he's just nodding. It's going, yeah, okay, so you've been invited to the party, but there's more to it. And I'm like, oh, you know, 
I thought I got it. You know, I had this amazing bliss state, and I thought that was it. No. No. Now you have to integrate what that bliss state showed you. What did it show you? Well, that it feels really good to meditate. Mm-mm-mm. No. There's so much more. I took that one right on the chin. It's like, oh no, I'm somebody who achieves. And I want to achieve awakening. And that certainly was, no. Okay. Back to the cushion. But this is, uh, you know, what is it that like these major, these big experiences show us? What is it that the little experiences can show us? What is it that this practice actually leads to and away from? I have a, uh, a book by a gentleman named Sean Murphy that I, I just found on my bookcase, and I, I was quite taken. I was just flipping through it, and I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, it's called 108 American Zen Stories. And, you know, there, there are 108 impediments to awakening. We've talked about this before. For those of you that didn't know this, there are 108 stitches on a baseball. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Brian Wilson, Buddha. That's all I'm saying. Just Brian Wilson, closer for the Giants. Tim Kettle was the only one who smiled at that. Thank you, Tim. When, when his students asked Shunryu Suzuki, what is enlightenment? Suzuki Roshi was known to reply... What do you want to get enlightened for? You may not like it. What would enlightenment mean to you? Just as you may have been clinging to, when's McAllister going to start yammering? When's he going to start talking? That can be kind of a subtle one. Another subtle but very deep area for clinging is, what's your definition of enlightenment? What would it look like? What would it feel like? What would it be like? Because I promise you, the answer to any one of those questions is precisely wrong. Hate to break it to you, but it's not what you think it is. And why does he say this? You may not like it. Well, quite frankly, it means you experience your life more fully. It means that you actively engage in a life where there is no hiding, where preferences become something that show you where your clinging is, as opposed to something to be celebrated or to uh, add to the mask of personality as a way of decorating and identifying yourself against other beings. This is from Philip Kaplow. He says, the enlightened man, and by the way, we can, we can get non-gender specific here, the enlightened person if you feel like it. I'm going to read it from his, uh, from his writing though. The enlightened man neither opposes nor evades what lies before him. Sound familiar? Everything depends upon the occasion and the timing. When he needs to act, he acts. When one's action is decisive and one responds with nothing left over, it's as though he hasn't acted at all. 
In other words, we act fully. We engage fully. This is not about passivity. This is about utter and complete engagement in exactly what's happening right now. Without reservation, we engage. And when we engage fully, there's no room for clinging. The fact of the matter is, very few of us ever engage fully. We engage partially, thinking that that partiality is utterly full. Fullness is revealed to us as we begin to integrate stillness, as we begin to study our life, as we begin to see where we cling, where we reject, as we start looking at attachment with deep care. where we don't (laughs) make the mistake of just identifying others' attachments. That's just the most obnoxious stage. This is when our friends begin to hate us and our practice. (laughs) Well, that's because you're clinging. You know? Like, uh, yeah, screw you too, Zen boy. You know? When we can really, really honestly, honestly be with what is without running, without flinching. The entire universe opens up through us. This is from uh, Dick Baker, who had his uh, slew of problems at, at Zen Center, but I think I love what he... What he he's, I think he's an amazing, amazing uh, uh, repository for information. And uh, teaching, he says here, the definition of an enlightened person is one who always has everything they need. At every moment, what they need is there. They're not seeking anything, which is actually the big topic of last week's talk. If you really are seriously practicing to be free, he says, and to simultaneously realize enlightenment, you never seek out of the immediate situation. No matter how bad it is, you transform the immediate situation into what you need. It's all there. Do you have that capacity? Do you have the capacity to take what's going on right now and begin to see the gift that it is That it's actually a gift of precisely what you need to awaken more deeply. Thich Nhat Hanh mentions, The moment of awakening may be marked by an outburst of laughter. But this is not the laughter of someone who has won the lottery or some kind of victory. It is the laughter of one who, after searching for something for a long time, suddenly finds it in the pocket of his coat. It's under your nose. It's closer than that. It's closer than your own mind. D.T. Suzuki, uh, Murphy writes, illustrated the effect of Satori, which is the Zen awakening, the the Japanese name we give to the uh, uh, Zen awakening experience. He says, D.T. Suzuki illustrated the effect of Satori in the following way. If a candle is brought into an absolutely dark room, the darkness disappears and there is light. 
But if 10 or 100 or 1,000 candles are added, the room will become brighter and brighter. Yet the decisive change was brought about by that first candle which penetrated the darkness. This is us. Do we have the capacity to bring our light to bear on whatever darkness we may perceive? On whatever darkness others may perceive? Do we have the capacity to literally witness what is prior to mind? What is prior to the experience of mind, prior to the experience of body? Do we have the capacity to be so conscious as we move through the world that it becomes light? That there is, to kind of borrow from Milan Kundera, an unbearable lightness of being as we move through the world. One that carries with it, a life that carries with it purpose, integrity, care, even in the goof-ups, the mistakes, consciousness is brought right into the middle of it so that every single goof-up and mistake actually delivers the gift of deeper awareness to each of us. In this way, we really can't go wrong. <clears throat> if, as our guide, we have do not do harm... If that acts as our guide, if we are, to make it a little bit more Buddhist, if we are appealing continually to our highest self, to the community, no matter how small or how big it might be, to the teaching, to Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, in other words, but not necessarily in that order. If we can bring our full life into, through, and from that space then we have everything we need. Always. Always. Be bright. So when you have the judgmental mind that's churning and burning, that's especially that uh, is, is uh, self-negating, you know, that really starts hammering us, why do you think that arises, especially as our practice begins to deepen and carry a certain shift with it? The ego's job is to say, help, help, don't kill me. And usually the way it says, help, help, don't kill me is, are you flipping kidding me? This is ridiculous. You are such an idiot. Yet who is the you that the ego is talking to? Itself. The ego is immersed in self-reflective, or we could say reflexive dialogue. If anybody, and we experience this in really, really interesting ways, if anybody has ever had the experience of, you know, I just can't stand it when I do that. If you've ever had that thought, that is the ego 
dividing like an amoeba instantaneously and going to war with itself as a way of maintaining control over the offering that the infinite is continually giving it. So, anytime you have a self-critical thought, anytime any of us has a self-critical thought, it's just ego saying, Help me. Actually, it does sound like, um, uh, I think I just sounded like a cartoon character. Which, uh, droopy dog? No, I'm feeling so frightened. I'm the ego. And I will not do a Dharma talk like that, although it would be kind of funny if... I'm the ego. I'm miserable. That right there was worth the uh, price of admission, I'm sure. <laughs> But, um, I mean, your, your point's, you're, it's beautiful. I mean, it, it, we really, really want to watch those self-critical moments as being gifts. Because what that means is, if you're going into self-criticism, it means that the offering is close. Ego is feeling quite desperate to maintain, you know, charge and control. Yeah. Yeah. Consistent, regular sitting, and total stillness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so among your group, as you guys were discussing, that, that was echoed to a certain extent? Yeah. Yeah, the thing... This is what helped me. I had a teacher who said, the, the very thing that prevents your sitting in you, whatever voice says, oh, go, you know what, not this morning. Take, take the day off. That's the very thing that is acting as an impediment to awakening. So whenever that impulse arises, know what it is. Know that it's fear. And looking around. That's yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. That's that's the very the very aspect of mind that does not want to relinquish control. But if we see it as such, it's out of control. If we know exactly what it is, and instead of judging it or whatever, we can just go, oh, hi. That open, airy, yet deeply grounded, oh, hi. Hi. Or wow, is something that's much bigger than oh God! Ring the bell! Ring the bell, McAllister! Yeah. When we are in bed, the alarm goes off, and we're supposed to sit, and we decide, no. That's when we really have to have some spine. Yeah. Afternoon for you, maybe. Yeah, sure. And, and you know, it's okay. I, I happen to find that my mornings are more productive than my afternoons. I zonk in the afternoon. Um, I tend to I tend to fall asleep in the afternoon. That's just me. Other people, as long as you carve it out and you just do it, you know.
how how uh, important is it to have the idea of enlightenment in mind in this practice? How important? Great question. How important is it to have the idea of enlightenment? Yeah, or the goal of it. I mean, um, yeah. Speak on that. I think. Say please. I'm teasing. <laughs> Speak on that. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Um, when there is an active revulsion that we feel towards a goal, we need a goal. When we are too identified or too, uh, too bound to a goal, we need to loosen up. And this is where you become the, uh, your own spiritual pharmacist. You figure out just the right medicine for your practice. Okay? So in other words, if this is why I, I've always struggled with, and I, I've written about this too, um, you know, if you, oh, I, I, don't, I don't care if I w- wake up in this life. You know, if I can't do it this one, I'll do it in the next one. And to me, that was the biggest crock of bullshit. That is wimping out. That is utterly wimping. Not that I'm attached to this. That was utterly, I was so pissed off. You know, I was, I was sitting there in the dining hall and I listened to this going from these senior monks that have been doing this for years and years. And it's like, what kind of bullshit is that? You, then what the hell are you doing here? If you're not here to wake up, if you're not here to wake up in this life, get the hell out. What are you doing? You're wasting everybody's time. Now, over the years, I've softened it a bit. <laughs> but I still think if there is no resolute commitment to walking this path with every single bit and fiber of our being, with, with, a, with a degree of integrity and strength and just meeting it as best we can in every single moment, even when we fall, if we can't fall mindfully, and walk mindfully and all those things, then what we're really doing is just kind of putting all this stuff off until we're just about to die. And that's just fine on the one hand. On the other hand, the commitment of of this life that I am leading right now and what I find myself trying to like be this just really awkward cheerleader about is that this can be done now it'll only ever get done now it's not going to happen at some future point okay it's going to happen in this moment when we can let all of this stuff begin to coalesce and inform what's actually going on and that happens with practice. So what we do is we keep practicing doing it and practicing doing it and practicing doing it. And pretty soon, stuff shifts. And there, a teacher is born. And then all this stuff has been passed on. And it gets to extend way beyond the idea of me, teacher, and the idea of, let's say, you, student, it becomes one thing. It becomes one dance. And what spins out of that? More light, more candles, in more darkness. And so it becomes a way of being in the world as opposed to a thing that we try to achieve. The minute it's enlightenment, 
typically it becomes deeply personalized. But because I want this. Well, on the one hand, you've got to have a little of that fire. But on the other hand, the more you burn with that fire, the more you realize it's not you. It's not my enlightenment. And if it is, if, it is, if, if anybody says that, you know, either I am enlightened or here's what enlightenment really is or here, here's what I know my enlightenment to be, yeah, that's sketchy at best. I actually would recommend running because usually what they have done is they've turned awakening as opposed to something that must be shared for it to be worthy of any type of attention into something that's become personalized and held and attached, clung to and tossed out in little bits. Does this make sense at all? So having... Having the idea of it is great because it inspires us to keep pushing. Ultimately, though, the idea of it falls away. Yeah, I remember uh, some of your earlier talks. You know, the uh, it's kind of this uh, goal of, of acquiring it. Uh, the goal, the the idea of acquiring it. Uh, gets you there but it doesn't get the thing yes that's it, it, it what it does is it establishes it establishes the path but we begin to see that the path itself is delusion right or uh, William Blake said it beautifully he said the fool who pursues his folly becomes wise we in other words we sit still to get in many respects a feeling that we are somehow closer to God Right? The stillness somehow reveals spirit to us. When in fact, what we realize is we're never closer to God than we are right now because God is not separate from us. The idea of God is perpetually separate from us. But God herself is exploding through every single aspect of being 100% of the time. And when we begin to kind of open to that, we then start to walk with a truth that is beyond your truth or my truth. We begin walking as the infinite, consciously. And what got us there? This yearning, this desire to get there. But once there, we realized, oh my God, I was here in the beginning. So you're saying that you think it really takes a wholehearted commitment, wholeheartedly. It can't just be a... Um, a hobby? This is a maintenance just to keep me less miserable. Sure, sure, but that's what therapy's for. <laughs> I think therapy's designed to keep us just a little less miserable where we become so intimate with our neuroses that they just kind of soften what this work and this is just my view and you know other people are going to disagree what this work is really about is the next level the next level is where you recognize that those neuroses were never yours that nothing is yours including the sense of you that feels possessive Thank you, everyone.